Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm pretty excited to introduce you to Laura Spaulding, the head of our legal advisory team here at Pursuit. Laura sat down with Nathan Collier from our marketing team to talk about her story. Before we jump to the episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I met Laura. She's probably going to be mortified that I'm telling this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Three years ago, Laura applied for a position at Pursuit as our second customer success hire. And after I put Laura through a painful interview experience, I think we probably met four or five times. And at one point, it was on a weekend too, where I asked her to come in and have a long two or three hour interview with me. What a pain I was. And after all of that, I said to Laura, Laura, I'm not sure you're right for the role. You don't have the experience. You know, you used to be a former lawyer. You haven't had any customer success experience. Laura, we're going to keep looking to fill that role. You know, thanks for the time that you spent. Three days later, I received a 30, 60, 90 day plan about what she would do if she was given the opportunity to take the position as our customer success hire. It was stylized all in the pursuit colors, the branding, and it was an incredible plan. But not only the fact that she sent me the plan, she demonstrated to me that she wanted that position more than anything. She didn't accept my no as an answer. So I thought, you know what, for someone that wants a position this badly, and to this day, it would have been the worst decision I'd ever made. It was the worst decision I I had made not accepting Laura on the spot and the best decision. So the best reversal for me. And it demonstrated to me how important it is to be hiring, not for past experience, but for potential, for resilience, for drive. And I couldn't be more proud of the success that Laura has had uh, in the Pursuit team. Now, in this episode, um, Laura takes us through her journey from her early days as a lawyer in Melbourne to her current role at Pursuit. She talks about the mission of Pursuit's legal advisory team. And then she shares the three key lessons that she's learned about purchasing complex legal services that everyone should know. This one starts with a bit of a punch too, as Laura shares her story about being a victim of the billable hour. So in the usual fashion, I'm so excited to ask you to sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Laura, thanks for joining the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Laura, in in previous conversations that you and I have had, you said this really interesting thing to me about sort of your history, which is you described yourself as a victim of the billable hour. And I think we could sort of use that as the frame to sort of dig into sort of your, your history. So how is it that over time you became a victim of the billable hour? Let's take it all the way back. I knew ever since I was, ever since I can remember that I wanted to be a lawyer. When I finished school, I went straight to law school. 
I did a double degree in law and business. And then I went straight into working in a law firm. I was a law clerk at a couple of firms. And then I ended up in a big commercial law firm as a, as a brand new baby lawyer. Um, and that's really when my first exposure to the legal industry started. We should say people people can hear you. This was in Australia, right? This was in Australia. So yes, yeah. um, I always forget to tell people that I'm Australian <laughs> because that to me is not <laughs> obviously a novelty. And then when I start talking, people go, "Hang on a minute, where, where are you from?" <laughs> I started in a in what we call a big law environment, a big law firm. Um, that's probably a, a private commercial practice in the most traditional of senses. You know, a victim of the billable hour. I think you know a lot of early career lawyers can probably relate to what I mean by that. When you go into this role, you have really high expectations about being able to influence change and make a difference. And it's not to say that those things aren't possible, but I think one of the first lessons I learned was that it's very um, much about the perception of what you do than what you actually do in a legal mm -hmm. environment. And a symbol of that for me was the billable hour. This kind of unattainable quota of time that you needed to dedicate or bill to a client. And that was kind of your measurement of your value, your success, um, your commoditization as a, a professional services person or professional. And that, to me, kind of started my journey, my nature of questioning things and challenging what goes on around me. I started to question the business of law and I became probably more obsessed with the traditions behind the way that we deliver services and the way that we build clients and what that means and how you grow a career than I was actually with the practice of law. Yeah. What was your quota? Look, I think they charged me out at a rate of 350 an hour, if I remember correctly. That's Australian dollars. Um, I remember my quota was what I would be measured on if I was up for a promotion and to get a bonus. And I remember it's something like you had to average eight and a half or nine billable hours a day. And so as an early career lawyer, you've got to think there's a lot of work to be done that isn't billable. There's a lot of administrative support work mm -hmm. to be done. And the junior lawyers are the ones doing that. So that's billable time on top of that day-to-day -day learning, administration, and team support. So to me, that quota would have required me to be in the office 14, 15 hours a day at a minimum to be considered worthy of progression in my career or a bonus. I was... And I really, really struggled with that. So you, so you're, you're in that environment. You start to start to have questions about how that whole that whole world works. What happens next? I start to really lean into that interest that I have in the business of law and the innovation of law. And at the time, there was a lot of buzz around innovating law, and there was a lot of kind of early criticism of the billable hour and it was the first time that we started to talk about alternative fee arrangements and technology and the and the role that that plays in the legal industry so i got involved with an organization called the legal forecast which was a not-for-profit for the for the progression of early career lawyers through the advancement of the legal industry so that is where, you know, I kind of got introduced to a lot of the concepts that I now live and breathe. The legal forecast was how I was introduced to what I'd consider probably the, the world's first real new law firm. So that firm 
ever, people in our industry are probably familiar with already. Um, so Law Squared, um, I started working for them after I had left a big commercial practice. And they were really a firm that was founded on this concept of new law, doing law differently, human-centered law. Basically, one of their one of their core principles was that they don't bill by an hourly rate. Um, yeah. Everything that they do is under an alternative fee arrangement and they're big proponents of value-based billing. Yeah. One of the things we talked about with them was no timesheets, right? Like no, yes. not, not measuring your life in six minute increments. So you work there for a while, still in Australia, right? The founder and CEO, Demetrio Zima, took a bit of a chance on me when I said to him, you know what, I think there's more out there in the world. I think that, you know, we, we're really lucky to be in this kind of small niche new law um, firm in Australia, but I want to see what else is out there. And I, you know, I'm really passionate about a lot of things. So I said, send me to New York city. I've got to, I've got to get out of here. I've, I know, you know, I just had a feeling I'd never even been to the U S before. I'd never been to New York. I just said, I've got to go. And he kind of came back to me and said, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's give it a go. We were doing a bit of cross-border work at the time, a little bit of transactional work in the U S so it made sense, but it was really more about him kind of seeing something in me and believing in me and giving me this shot. So I think it was three weeks after that conversation that I landed in New York City and found myself in this completely different world. And I knew from the moment that I got here that this is where I belonged and this is where I was meant to be. At some point you end up coming from from there to Pursuit. How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, working for an Australian company in the US is not as simple as it sounds. You've got, you know, immigration, visas, remote work on a completely different time zone. It was the greatest kind of chance for me to kind of sink my teeth into what New York had to offer and really fall in love with the city. Um, but, you know, very quickly I had to make a decision. Is this something that I want to commit to? Is this something that where a place where I want to build a career? And I knew that I had more opportunities in technology and business and even the intersection between those two things and law here than I would in Australia. That's when I thought, okay, I'm going to commit to this. Um, and then through my same kind of legal tech network, that's when I was introduced to, to Jim Dalcusis and the team here at Pursuit. You got in a hell of Jim somehow. And there's this, there's this famous internal story of how you, yes. you convinced Jim to give you a job. February, March, 2020, I met Jim and the team. You know, I'd worked as a lawyer. I'd had a short career Um with Law Squared, working in alternative fee arrangements. But, you know, I wasn't the confident professional that I am today. And he said to me, you know what, I don't think you're ready for this. I don't think you're ready for this journey. I don't think you're ready for this uh, company. And he said, you know, I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep looking at other candidates. And for now, it's going to be a no. And, you know, I was interviewing with a couple of tech companies at the time, and I had a couple of different offers from you know, other legal tech startups, a lot of their technology was still centered around time-based billing or yeah. kind of automating the way that things are done today or the current state. Pursuit was the only company whose mission and product I genuinely believed in. I genuinely saw the vision, the opportunity, and I knew that this is where I wanted to make my mark and my impact. So Jim told me no, and then... <laughs> I, a couple of days later, I sent him a three-page proposal on what I was going to achieve in my first 90 days at Pursuit if he gave me a shot. And he called me probably an hour later and said, well, now I've got no choice. That's brilliant. You've had a couple, worn a couple of hats. Um, 
here internally. So, so take me up to the present. Okay. So I started as the first customer success manager. So David uh, Falstein headed up our kind of client strategy and success team, first team that was really focused on making customers successful and uh, retention. So I was hired as a client strategy and success manager to be really honest with you, and I don't know if I've said this to Jim, and maybe that's what that's what, what his question mark was, but I had no idea what that was. I had no idea what my job description would be. I just knew I wanted to be a part of it. So I started as a customer success manager, and I very quickly learned that, you know, my role is what I make it and what I define it as. And it is anything and everything under the banner of delighting customers and making them deliriously happy because they're so successful and making sure that pursuit is part of the fabric and the DNA of their legal operations programs and their legal departments. That role has continued to evolve as you defined it. How did, how did your current role come to be? I was promoted once or twice in, in that team. And then we, we figured out that Pursuit sits at this really interesting kind of the coalface of the transaction between the world's biggest corporate legal departments, most innovative corporate legal departments, and the world's biggest law firms. And when you kind of think about the value in that in terms of gathering knowledge and intel and insight into what's going on in the market and trends in legal buying and your ability to influence that, you realize that there is an opportunity here to be influencing and leading um, some of the best practices in legal buying, especially in this new world, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. Now I head up Pursuit's legal advisory team, and that team really is just the culmination of all of that knowledge and insight, the data that sits behind it. I have you know, spent most of my time the last couple of years on the phone to clients, whether it's the it's an IP litigation lawyer, whether it's an employment lawyer, a transactions attorney, and they'll call me and they'll say, look, I've got this really big matter. I need to engage counsel yesterday. I want to do an alternative fee arrangement. I want to bid this work out. What do I do? Where do I start? How do I leverage my buying power? And so I'd work on both sides of that engagement, um, advising the client, but also supporting the law firms through that journey of kind of responding to, to RFPs and participating in a competitive RFP process. What is your, your mission and your vision for, for the legal advisory team? Um, who's on it and then how do they work? Let me start by saying that the number one question I get asked uh, by clients, what are my peers doing that I should be doing? My goal in building this team over the last 12 months has been to hire people that come from really diverse backgrounds in in the legal and procurement space. I've got a pricing analyst formerly from from Latham & Watkins. I've got um, government procurement specialists. I've got someone from the New York State Attorney's Office people that have worked in-house in big banking organizations in their legal buying teams, really a team full of powerful and unique perspectives on the, the process of legal buying. So a client comes to you, they say, what are, what are, my, what are my peers doing? What are some things that you know that, that maybe not everybody knows about these kinds of things? A couple of concepts that I always come back to that for me, feel pretty table stakes, but mm. you'd be surprised how valuable it is when we're talking to, you know, whether it's heads of litigation, whether it's head of legal operations. 
Scoping is a muscle that every single lawyer needs to have. The process of understanding and articulating what it is that you're buying, not what, how much time, but what are the outcomes and what is the value in those outcomes? That muscle is so critical, especially in complex matters. Speaking of complex matters, there is no uh, matter that is too complex or unpredictable for a alternative fee arrangement. AFAs can still be hourly driven fee models and it probably ends at what a true AFA is in my opinion which is value-based billing just paying for the value and the outcomes. It sounds weird to say that's a fairly controversial statement is it not like there's no such thing as a matter that can't be done on an AFA? I think even some of my colleagues maybe even some people on my team would disagree with that statement but I am very very firm in what I believe. I believe that there can be a world where there's no hourly rates, where there's no six minute increments. You know why? Because I see it every day. I watch it happen. I work with a lawyer who's been doing this for 20 something years and they have some of the most complex IP litigation. And they say, you know, I love the concept of AFAs. It's just not for me. It's just not for my body of work. It's not for my my relationships with my firms. And then when you get in there and you actually talk to them about how it's going to improve their day-to-day, how it's going to make their lives easier, how it's going to improve the relationships that they have with their firms. And I can feel some of the people listening to this right now rolling their eyes. I am willing to, to stand by because I am the one on the phone to these lawyers every day talking them through it. And I've seen them say, you know what, Laura, I'll give it a go and let's scope it out and let's get a really tight kind of activity collared fixed fee for this complex litigation. Let's set these assumptions. Let's build in these material deviation clauses. And then they send it out and they get six proposals back from firms that are apples to apples, that are tightly scoped and predictable and controlled. Those AFAs are enforced throughout the life of the matter. Do you think the the skepticism is almost a function of people just not having seen as much data, as many examples as you have? It could be what the firms are saying. I think people are generally driven by a fear. And there's a, a very much of a, if it's not broken, you know, don't fix it mentality. But I think there's a probably a misconception that a lot of things are working fine and they're actually not. You know, the concept of hourly billing to me is fundamentally flawed and broken. And I saw that from the very first day that I was billing time as a junior lawyer. I would watch, you know, my peers around me try and kind of beef up their hourly time to meet those quotas and to meet that perception that they were working as hard as they could. And then I would watch partners come in and write that time off, put their own time in, and then the bill would be three times as big anyway. I'm not saying that all firms do that and I'm not saying that, you know, there's dishonesty that goes into it. I just think the incentives aren't there, that there is a a natural conflict between the concept of billing time for career progression and promotion and what is in the best interest of your client. That's why your first one is scoping is a muscle every lawyer needs. It's critical to, to buying especially complex legal services. So scoping is a muscle every lawyer needs. There's no, there's no such thing as, is there anything else? One thing that I see all the time is probably an overuse of capped fees as an alternative fee arrangement. And don't get me wrong, capped fees are still considered an alternative fee arrangement, but they live in this family of almost imposter AFAs that are still ultimately driven by time. 
And what happens with a capped fee, I, I see it a lot in M&A, where the lawyers will go in, they'll do a great scoping exercise. They'll identify all the phases of the transaction, identify all the assumptions. Usually you have a term sheet that works as a really solid scope of work for the firms to go off. And then they'll put a cap in at each of those phases. And what lawyers don't realize is that when you cap your services that way, you put all of the risk, you put all of the risk onto the firms. Hmm. And so the firms are a business. They have to make money. They have to make sure that they are profitable and mitigating risk. And so when firms see that no matter what, I can't build past this number, they have to account for some risk if the actual scope of work changes, if the nature of the transaction changes and they need to do more work because they need to provide more value, then they will bake in that risk into their cap. So you'll end up with maybe a budget estimate here, but a cap up here, which actually gives your firms an incentive to go up to the cap beyond the budget estimate. So when we're talking about AFAs, usually it's like we start with something like a cap and then when we get a bit more comfortable, we go up to a fixed fee. But fixed fees aren't necessarily fixed and that's probably a discussion for, for a, you know, an <laughs> AFA 101 session. Yeah. But um, yeah, capped fees are not necessarily good AFAs. Good place to start and better than just an hourly driven budget estimate. But um, you know, we, have, we have things that we can do to improve those as well. Let me, let me ask you a couple of the, the questions that I know Jim loves to ask people. What's, what's the hardest thing you've ever done that you're prepared to share with us? The hardest thing I've ever done is pack up my bags in three weeks and move to another country. That's the hardest thing I've ever done with no friends or family in the United States and then live through a pandemic in a foreign country. That's, that's the hardest thing I've ever done. How much time between when you wake up in the morning and when you check your email? I have barely opened my eyes before I check. No, I check my Slack messages first. And then we have a we have a global team, and obviously we have clients all over the world. And I, yeah, it's sick. I know it's sick, but I, I I can't help it. So if you have any if you have any therapy or recommendations on that, Nathan, I'd be happy to hear it. Love it. I think you're in good company. Most of many many of the guests on this show have had similar answers, and I and I have a similar answer as well. What can we expect from you and your team moving forward? What you can expect from from me and my team is to give you what we know, all of the insights and all of the trends and all of the the data and the things that we're exposed to on a day-to-day basis, package that and give it back to the listeners of this podcast. That sounds great. Laura, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.